The gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the good news according to St. John, the 14th chapter. I'm going to start in verse 18. And this is what's known as uh, the upper room discourse. This is the final in-depth conversation Jesus had with his disciples, uh, chapters 14 through 17, a very long conversation uh, just before he was crucified, the night before he was crucified at the Last Supper. And so this is part of that dialogue. Jesus speaking, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you now for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the gospel of our Lord. Man, I'm in trouble every single time I go to a new gathering of people in New York City, or a gathering of new people, I should say, people I don't know. Uh, you know there's always two questions. You know what the two questions are, right? When you're breaking the ice, getting to know someone, cocktail party, whatever, gathering, work function. There's always the two get-to-know-you questions that people ask in New York City. The first one, obviously, is, so, what do you do? Which, by the way, is not just a normal question. I've gone to other places in the world, and people don't ask that question at all. You could spend like a month before they ask you. Uh, but that we tend to ask each other, what do you do? And I'm already presented with the problem because I know what happens if I tell them right away what I do, then, you know, like the music stops, the jukebox skips, and everyone goes, hmm, right? No one wants to talk to you. So I have, I have a list of things that I pull from uh, to, you know, make it more interesting for me at these parties. I have my outlandish answers, which is I just lie, and I tell them uh, I'm a rock star, you know, or I'm a race car driver. Sometimes I just do the absurd I tell them, you know, I'm a dog washer. They're like, a dog washer, which I have actually done before for a day. Um, I could tell people that my job is to clean the teeth of the baby sharks at the aquarium in Coney Island. 
um, which may or may not be a real job, but I wouldn't do it even if it were one. Uh, but it's fun to tell people that. But my favorite one, the one that I actually use, is a little bit horrifying. This is a trick that I use. I tell people, I say, what do you do for a living? With a straight face, I say, well, I audit low-income families for the IRS. And they go, oh. I'm like, well, you know, we got to get every penny that really matters, you know? And then when there's a real awkward pause, I say, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. I'm just a pastor. And they're like, oh, okay, a little bit better. So, you know, level the playing field. Something that sounds even worse than being a pastor. The other question, of course, is where are you from? Equally presents a challenge for me. Uh, I could tell them I'm from everywhere, which doesn't satisfy anyone. I could tell them I'm from nowhere, really. doesn't satisfy anyone. They want to know where I'm from, and I can tell them, well, I don't know. Where are you from? If they say Texas, I'm like, yeah, me too. Texas, sure. Uh, Washington State. I lived there for a long time. My family's from there. Yeah, Washington State. That's me. New York City, it's the place I've lived the longest. Didn't grow up here, but I've lived here longer than anyone else. I don't really know. I was a military brat. I don't know where I'm from. I don't know what these things are supposed to mean when people ask you where you're from as if it's a deep part of your identity. Perhaps you're from somewhere that means more to you than it does in my life. You have a sense of being from this place in the world. Perhaps it's been very instrumental in your life. But I would suggest that for all of us, this idea that where you're from, like what your original home was, is becoming less and less of a power uh, in our lives, less and less of a clue to our identity, less and less of something that can uh, carry us through life with a sense of who we are, where we're going, what we're meant to be, and certainly less and less of something that can make us a cohesive community, right? Uh, we see this throughout the world from all sorts of uh, trivial ways to really deep uh, and terrible ways from just globalization, the fact that everyone is moving all of the time everywhere and because of capitalism usually following a paycheck or we see it in worldwide immigration and all of the refugees of people who've lost their homeland against their will and have to go somewhere else, whether that be from Africa uh, or from the ancient or from the modern Near East or from Ukraine or even just the fact that you may feel like you're from a certain state perhaps in this country, but you don't get to see your extended family anymore, and so the power that that would have to reinforce who you are is less and less strong. So many of you know this feeling. I mean, New York City, if it's anything, is a melting pot. It's a city, historically, of immigrants, immigrant after immigrant population coming through. The Statue of Liberty, of course, an icon of welcome to a new homeland for a generation of what we would call pilgrims in more religious language. See, we know what it means if you're here to try to make a home away from home. So many of you, even those of you who grew up here, are trying to find a way to make this still your home. To imagine that Brooklyn is a place for people like us, for the movers, for the immigrants, for the strivers, for the transient. And there's much good to this. The way that it takes us away in some ways from deep tribalism and forces us to interact, and, and, uh, interact with people that are very different from us and learn to celebrate them and accept them and receive from them. But of course, there's also a lot of bad in this. The sense of loss, the sense of loneliness, the sense of not knowing who you are, where you came from, maybe where you're going, unless you just hustle harder than everyone else to get whatever your private little dream is. This sense of homelessness. Perhaps you felt this way. I was describing recently what it's been like to be a pastor in New York City the last uh, 16 years. 
And I've often felt like, say that you bought some land, you're building a house, or maybe you got one and you're renovating it, and you're working hard to fix this place up so that you can invite people in and they can like be a part. You can, I've got a room for you. I've got a room for you. Let's be a family together. Let's build this thing. But meanwhile, the floods are rising. They keep messing up what you're doing. And then there's just this hurricane all the time, knocking everything down. And that hurricane is just the transience of people in New York City. It seems so hard to put down roots and to build community. The sense of, will we ever be home here and have a real family? And I would suggest that in the Bible, ever since the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, when God made for us a home to be perfectly at home in, in this world, this actual world, free of any decay and loneliness and alienation, together to be fruitful, multiply, to cultivate, to see fruit come from our hands, and to be together in perfect harmony with God, with one another, and with the creation, that that is what we were made for, this home, but ever since Genesis 3, ever since we turned away from God, and so we don't want you to be the center of this home that the world has become for us a place of wandering, a place of pilgrimage, a place of danger, a place of loss, a place of war and hatred and enmity and tribalism and loneliness and homelessness. I'm gonna try to send you out a link to this talk this week in our next newsletter, but a friend of ours, Greg Thompson, a pastor who just wrote a terrific book called Reparations about why the church should be involved in racial uh, reparations, actual financial and monetary and relational reparations. A really good book. Finished his PhD on Martin Luther King Jr. He has a talk about the hospitality of God, that God is chiefly known to us as a host. But he's describing what we live in, what's been called the secular age. And he says a lot of people, especially Christians or religious people, tend to think, ooh, the, the secular age, these secular people, like there's this there's this secret deep state of people that are godless and hate people of faith or something like that. And he says, no, that's not really true. The chief characteristic of the secular age is not some militant coherence. The chief characteristic of the secular age, which is to say all of us and our friends and neighbors and those in charge and those not in charge, the chief characteristic, he argues, is homelessness. That we don't feel at home in our world we don't feel at home with one another. We don't feel at home in our houses often. And we often don't even feel at home in our own skin, in our own bodies. I think Greg is largely correct about this. Whether you feel homelessness literally, as in a material sense, you lack permanent shelter. Whether you feel it in terms of ancestry or tribe, like me, me feeling like I'm from nowhere, Maybe it's a community, like who do I actually belong to? Like I know it's really fun to be a part of the baby shark teeth, you know, polishing club, but is that my home? No, right? What community do you belong to? And relational. See, home was often a place for extended family and community, but we've turned houses into a micro unit focused on two parents and their kids rather than an extended family what it used to be. James Howard Kunstler is a social psychologist and sociologist. He wrote in his book, Home From Nowhere, he says, if anything, there appears to be an inverse relationship between a growing obsession with the home as a totem object and the simultaneous disintegration of families that has become the chief social phenomenon of our time. We worship this idealized container for family life, that is a house, owning a home. 
And yet it turns out that the family cannot be sustained without the larger container of community life. And I would suggest that all of these, whatever one resonates with you, all of this, the Christian would say, is because deep down beneath all of this, we have a spiritual homelessness. We don't know what it is we are meant to come home to, where we came from, where we're destined to, where our safety and shelter really is, where our roots are. And so we find ourselves wandering, restless, looking at best and on occasion for a home that will last and that will satisfy. I want to bring you good news is that we were meant to be at home in this world. We were meant to be at home with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with the created order to be perfectly at home in our own skin and life, moment by moment. But instead, for some dark reason, we rarely feel at home. We feel instead what Walker Percy called the modern malaise, a type of sickness. That is, he says, the main emotion of the adult Northeastern American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. See, even when everything appears to be working to our advantage, we often feel disappointed and displaced. And that is because we attempt to make something in this world our ultimate home, not just a temporary place of refuge or a good to be cultivated, but instead our ultimate home when nothing will satisfy except for coming home to God. The original society, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that lived in perfect community that made all of this so that he could host you in it, made this world so that It could be a place of refuge for you and he could serve you and bless you in it. See, this world isn't our final home, so we're not to be overly dependent on it or identified with it or assimilated to it completely. As we heard in Revelation, there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming and that image is really just this heaven and this earth purified, set free from decay and death and alienation and displacement, and homelessness, and sin, and made finally and fully home for God from shore to shore, from here to the end of the cosmos, and us at home again with one another. This is the good news Jesus came to bring, and he talks about it to his people in his final conversation with them, in which he's told them over and over again, I'm about to die. You're putting all of your hope in me. You think that I'm about to make this little Jerusalem, the one that you can knock on the walls here and touch. You think I'm going to make this God's home again, just like it used to be thousands of years ago, and bring God's presence back into the temple fully and kick the butt of these Romans and get them out of here so you can feel safe at your home and I'm going to give this land back to you and you're going to be happy. But instead, he's been telling them that's not the ultimate plan. This was a temporary home and God did use it temporarily, but now I'm doing something different and involves me going to a cross and die and be dead for three days in the tomb in this earth. And then I will bring a new home into the world. He's telling them he's leaving them. He's abandoning them. Whatever home they feel with him, he is going to leave and they are going to be wandering alone and homeless without him. And so he brings them good news. Let me read to you just a few verses and pull out a few things from it again. He brings this good news to them. And I'll just describe it to you. He tells them, when I go, when you feel homeless, when you think you're alone, I want you to hear some things. I'm telling you now so that you know. And that is that you are actually, no matter how you feel, no matter how distant it seems like I am after I die, when you're confused, when you're afraid of the Romans, when you're pointing fingers at one another, when you're hiding in a locked room, all the things that are going to happen to them, 
He says to them, I want you to know now that you are, in fact, members of a royal family, a cosmic, eternal royal family, and you always have a home every moment of every day in this life. Listen to verses 18 to 21 again. He says, I'm leaving you, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. In fact, I will come back to you. An orphan, you know, is someone who has no family. They have no home, which means at the moment they have no future, no hope. In that sense, they don't have a full and present now because they have no home. They have no family. And he says, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you in just a moment. No one in the world is going to see me anymore, but you're going to see me because I'm going to live. And so you will live too. And when you see this, when you live, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. And then he says, if anyone loves me, my Father and I will love him back. And we will come and make our home with him. I will not leave you as orphans. You will be a member of a family. In fact, you won't just belong in some sort of blood way like you're a children and you get the inheritance because we have the paperwork and we can show the bloodline or we can show the adoption and so we've done the legal work and now you're going to get the inheritance. He says, actually, we're going to love you and you're going to love me back in, in this mysterious way. You're going to be inside of me. And if you're inside of me, you're inside of God the Father that made everything. And then we're going to come to you if you love us back and we're going to make our home inside of you. You will always have a home wherever you go, even though it feels like I'm absent, even though it feels like I'm away. God is love, and because God is love, you will not be an orphan. You'll be children of a loving father. You'll be taken care of and guided by your elder brother. We will be united in love of one another. And this, no matter what happens to you, he sends them out to the ends of the earth. Almost all the ones he's speaking to here are martyred for their faith in foreign lands as strangers, as pilgrims that walk the earth and met their untimely end at the enmity of other people who hated this message of love and this message of reconciliation and this message of a new community that transcended all tribes and race and class and gender. They didn't like this story, but they went and told it to the people that didn't like it. Because they were compelled by love. And they knew that God was a lover. That they had become a part of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that wherever they went, they actually were at home in this world. Because God lived in them. See, when you think about who God is, as often as you think about him. Some of you think about him a little. Some of you think about him a lot. That's okay. When you do, in the quiet of your heart and mind, think about the concept of God. What do you picture? Nothingness? Maybe at best an absentee landlord? Been gone a long time. Kind of do what I want with this place. Still send the rent checks in. Don't ever see him coming around though. Maybe if you've bumped up against religious traditions, you think of him primarily as an angry judge. Or in other traditions, just a nice little therapist there to make sure that you have perfect contentment and satisfaction with who you are. Maybe you think of him as a sacrifice or a hero to model. But one thing that he is most fundamentally held up from beginning to end, and some of these images I mentioned are actually scriptural, but even like judge 
or therapist or healer. These are reactions to Genesis 3. What he is fundamentally, underneath all of these pictures that we see in the scriptures or in your minds, inasmuch as they're true, is that from beginning, before the Bible was even printed, and to the end, God is fundamentally in himself, in his character, a host. A host that creates a place and a people to be at home in and with. And you can see all of his actions in history, from creation to redemption, incarnation, salvation. It is largely about bringing homeless people home again to their ultimate source, God himself, who alone can satisfy our hearts and desires, a new community. And yeah, I guess in this sense, it's a mobile home in this life. One that moves around with us wherever we go together. He desires guests. He desires people to come into his home and to be with him because he loves us. And this is good news. I mean, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but one of the deepest desires of the human heart is to belong. We long to form relationships and be a part of community. And so we've known this intuitively, but scientists and sociologists have been confirming it through countless studies in the last few decades. Did you know that relative to our body size, we have larger brains than any other creature on earth, especially me? Um, why is that? Neuroscientists have discovered that the primary purpose of our brains is what? Social interaction. Our default mode, when we're not dealing with math problems or making dinner, is to think about other people's thoughts, feelings, and goals and our relationship to them. Some of you have been around for a long time. have heard me quote this once or twice before, but it's amazing. Some economists have actually put a price tag on our relationships. According to The Atlantic in a study, it says this, if you volunteer at least once a week, the increase to your happiness is like moving from a yearly income of $20,000 to $75,000. So quit complaining and start serving before church, Okay. If you don't have enough money, not really. That's not the right uh, example. But if you have a friend or application, if you have a friend that you see on most days, it's like earning $100,000 more each year. We are social animals. We have a basic need to belong to a group and form relationships. It's a big part of why we do church. To ask this question, is it true that we are a part of a royal family that will never end, that is in fact actually growing and gathering new people into this family? Can it be true that God is really a host and you ultimately belong to him? You are not an orphan. You are not actually even whatever tribal name you gave yourself or someone else gave you, your surname or the place that you're from. Ultimately, you are from God and you are for God and you are destined to dwell in a new heavens and a new earth as Brian so eloquently preached last week. You can go and listen to it if you weren't here. The detailed concreteness of the new heavens and new earth. It's not an escape to heaven and clouds. It is this world renewed, remade, and set free from its bondage to decay. To be the perfect home. No dark corners anymore. No scary closets. No wondering what's in the basement. No fear. A perfect and final home. And if you wonder, in your wandering, in your sense of displacement, in your dislocation, in your loneliness, if you will ever make it to this home, Jesus gives one other promise here. I just want to briefly look at. 
And that is, we are not just belonging to a family and have a final home that we are to anticipate and to try to be at home as we wander here. But in all of our pilgrimage, that other image in the Bible of resident aliens, that, the word alien, um, not like a space alien, but like an immigrant, that we both belong to this world, we're residents here, but also we are immigrants, we're migrants, we're moving. That in all of this, we are actually doted upon, guided, and trained for the future by the Holy Spirit. You know, I moved around a lot because my dad was in the military. One of the things that happened when my parents split up is that my dad lived overseas a lot, and this was pre-internet. It was when uh, phones were landlines, and they were really expensive to call Korea, for example. And so I mostly got letters from my dad. And in those letters, I would get news about my dad. And I would read about him, and I could apply it intellectually into my sense of identity, like, oh, maybe Galt's are like this. And I could apply it on my own without his involvement. But do you know what I wanted most in those times, especially as an adolescent growing up, trying to figure out who I was? It wasn't just letters from my dad or news about my dad or the ability to intellectually ponder his words and then apply them to my life. What I wanted was my dad. I wanted his presence. And I think we often think of God like this, that maybe at best one of these holy texts and one of these traditions might have some words from him like a letter. And if I think about it hard enough, I might have a breakthrough and then I can apply it with willpower to my life. But what if the power of God is not in your intellect or in your will or merely even in the texts themselves? What if the power is the personal presence of God himself with you, in you? Jesus says, when I'm gone and you're wondering what's going on and if you're alone, remember this. You belong to this royal family. You are not orphans. You are destined for a home so you can be at home now. And I'm going to give you this entity, this being, this essence that you don't know about yet. It's called the helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Father will send this spirit in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is telling us that as we wander in this earth looking for a final homeland, that we have intimate, personal guidance. It's something much more than just letters from a distant universe of God and that we apply. It's the presence of God himself, the presence of Jesus himself, no longer located in a tabernacle, a wandering tent like in Israel, or in a house next door to David's in the temple in Jerusalem, or even in one flesh and blood body of a man named Jesus of Nazareth walking around that you would have had to make a pilgrimage to hear speak. Instead, when he ascends to heaven, he says, I will go global and intimate. My spirit will be able to go into human hearts and minds around the whole planet and be nearer to you than your own self, deeper to you than your conscience. Conscience. And your conscious consciousness. He is deeper to us than ourselves. He is in us and he is going to teach us all things. He is going to walk beside you in everything. You will never be alone. You are assured to come home finally to the embrace of God. He is the compass. He is the guide. And so we are not just being prepared for our future home. We are God's home. Do you believe that right now, friends? Let me just tell you in closing you're going to feel so alone this week. You're going to feel homeless in this world at times. I don't mean all the time, but at times this week. I promise this will happen to most of you. If not this week, give it another week. 
You will look in the mirror and not like what you see. You wish that you had a different body or gender or whatever it may be. You're going to feel not at home in yourself. You're going to feel not at home in some of your relationships. You're going to feel not at home in this world. And in that moment, the promise from Jesus, he says, you might feel all alone. You might feel like God is not near. But what I'm telling you, I have loved you. I've created you for love. I have made this world to be a home for you. You have a future home. And so now, if you will just love me back even this much, just to say, I love this idea. I think I love you back. I love you. Try it. He says, my father and I will come and make our home in you. That no matter how you feel, you are actually God's home this week. That people can come and knock on the door of your life and God is there. That you can say words to people and God is speaking. That you can serve people and they are served with the hands and feet of Christ himself. That you can walk up to a stranger, the least of these, the homeless, and in them you can see Christ. This is, this is good news, and this is why Jesus says, guess what I'm leaving you with as I go? Peace. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I don't give like the world gives. I don't give with scarcity. I give with abundance. That word peace, if you've been here, you've heard me say over and over again, is the word shalom. It is home. It is everything in fullness and abundance and nothing with lack and no one feeling isolated or confused, or left out, or homeless. And that's why it says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be afraid. I am leaving you even now with shalom. And so, friends of Resurrection Clinton Hill, just in closing, I'll leave you with a very concrete thought. If we want to be home to others, which is what we're called to do, we have to be at home with God more and more. To take this truth and apply it to our lives. To be God's home in our lives for one another. And as we experience this coming home week by week, moment by moment, conversation by conversation, service by service, we will grow at home in this world, no matter how difficult it is. And we will become a place of refuge and welcome to others. We may be doing that more and more in the weeks to come, for our brothers and sisters from other congregations. We may be doing it in this building as it seems to be coming true, that we are going to renew this building and open its doors and bring in the community with new services. But even as God guides us into all these things, and we hope that he does, by the Holy Spirit, teach us each step of the way, we will only continue this mission if week by week each one of you is trusting and believing that God has made you his home this day and that he loves to be with you and to dwell with you. He's not left you as orphans. You are his beloved sons and daughters. You are his family and no one can ever rip you from his hands. Come home again this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.